Father, we're so grateful that you do spread a feast uh, before us um, each Sunday. Thank you for all the talent, all the gifting, all the technology that brings us out of our beds this morning really weary or just sometimes half awake, maybe worried. And through the gift of music and worship and the gathering of your saints, you begin to give us a desire to pull up a chair to your table and eat with you of your love, to drink in your forgiveness. Father, I know there are people who have right now in this room, God, that, all, that are feeling guilty because of things that have happened this past week at work, this, this past week at home, this past week at school. We even know the Lord that our evil adversary would remind us of things that happened five years ago. And so we thank you for the opportunity to lay them all down at the foot of the cross and to just enjoy the blood of Christ covering our sins, washing away our guilt, for the Holy Spirit being breathed out of the mouth of Christ into our bodies, making us new. Thank you for the opportunity to believe that, to embrace that, to lay down in that, to be carried by that. So I pray the result of the service would be the exaltation, the enjoyment, the glad applause of Jesus Christ. We've never needed you more. And what we pray for ourselves, we pray for all of our brothers and sisters around the world, many suffering for their faith. Give them strength. Know that, thank you that you're taking them home. You will get them home. We love them. We labor with them. We preach, Lord, so that others from this church will go out to them. Share the gospel in the unreached areas of the world. The people that have never heard of Christ may this result Lord, would you send an earthquake today that rattles us from our complacency and sends this church to the ends of the earth. I pray this in the name of the one who owns the earth, Jesus, the one who died for the earth, Christ. Amen. It may not be the first official Thanksgiving in America, but it was nonetheless a gathering of men and women on this soil to express their gratitude for the Lord's rescue of their lives. The pilgrims uh, landed at Plymouth Rock June 11th, I mean December 11th in 1620, and the first winter can only be described as brutal. Of the 102 people that were on the Mayflower, 46 of them died. But the harvest of 1621 was amazing. And so they gathered for a three-day feast. They even invited 91 Indians because it was the men and women of the Indian tribes, local Indian tribes, that really caused their lives to be sustained. Now, it was obviously not until 1863 that Abraham Lincoln proclaimed that the final Thursday in November every year would be the national holiday that we now know as, as Thanksgiving. And I hope you've had, in a hundred different ways, a great, great Thanksgiving the most stunning Thanksgiving service that I know of in Scripture may be uh, that which occurred in A.D. 60. Two men found themselves in a Roman prison cell uh, in the city of Philippi. There was no big spread of food. 
no football games on TV, and there was no gathering of family, just two men bleeding from a beating and sitting in a dark prison singing with joy at midnight. Before we join them for that special Thanksgiving service, let me just remind you of how they got there. Paul and Silas are the two men that are the subject of our story today. They were on a second mission trip. Their first mission trip had been successful. They went back and encouraged some of the churches there in Turkey. And then they were moving on toward Europe um, or their next place. They were at a decision place and they thought that the highest population in the world at that time meant that they should travel east. But God said, no, in my providence, I want you to travel west. Acts chapter 16, verse 7 says it like that. The Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. That's a reference to them traveling east, where all the people were. God was sending them west into Turkey, uh, from Turkey into northern Europe. Jesus made it clear that his mission would involve a new direction. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And that's the world right now begging us. That's the world begging this church to go. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. It is significant in our story today that you remember the last line of that phrase, that God had called them to go into northern Europe, into Macedonia. So eventually they left Troas and arrived in the city of Philippi. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, the reason why Paul, in Europe, unreached with the gospel, expected to find people praying, is because Jews had been forced out of Jerusalem, and they scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and whenever they could on the Sabbath, they met in different cities together on Saturday for prayer. Paul said, I know I can find some Jews somewhere praying. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart. So Paul, preaching, this woman, businesswoman, very successful, dealt in, she trafficked in very expensive goods, purple cloth. She was from a, a, another city, but she was doing business in Philippi, and she was among the Jews that were gathered there at that ad hoc meeting place. And the Lord opened her heart. You're looking, as far as a record goes, of the first person who came to Christ in Europe. And when her family came to Christ, everybody in her family was baptized that night. And there was a house church formed in the city of Philippi, from what we know, the first church, house church in Europe. Now, we also know this, that Satan is not going to be active when some, he's not going to be silent when something like this happens. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, so now this would be a reference to the new house church. They're going back to Lydia's house. 
Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit, a demon, by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So if you are thinking about Christianity, trying to live it out, and it's difficult, there's a reason why. We see it right here in Philippi. When the Holy Spirit moves in new ways, in new places, among new people, there will always be a counterattack from the power of evil. So stop being surprised that it's hard. It's always going to be hard when you allow God to move in new ways in and through you. In this case, the evil came through a young girl, a female slave, demon-possessed. She had become the main attraction in town, and the corrupt and perverse men who owned her, bought her, used her so they could fill their pockets with money and probably give her a sandwich and say, thank you for making us rich. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the ways to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Well, we saw in the early verse that she had some sort of demonic blessing on her life to tell the future. So she was the main attraction in town. And now this headliner is following the apostles around saying, hey, they serve God. A naive person would say, yay, we're getting free publicity. Nope. Paul knew that when a demon-possessed person is validating your ministry, there's going to be a lot of confusion in town. This is how Joseph Stowell says it. Alliances between the light side and the dark side always become very confusing to the world and often water down the gospel. So, you know, so often we say, man, if so-and-so, they're so big and important, if they got saved, then all the world gets saved. Well, a lot of times it's just confusing to the world when somebody who's halfway in, halfway out, they start promoting Christ. Just the whole world gets real confused. So you just need pure gospel preaching. And so Paul was going to put an end to this. Verse 13, or Acts 16, finally Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the demon, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Now, this is a beautiful scene. Uh, I don't know how many of you in life have seen somebody become totally free of an addiction, totally free of a dark power. We've seen it on several occasions in India where we've actually watched a, a demon-possessed person shriek and scream and turn as hard as a tree and completely collapse as the demon left them. We even watched, we've even got a word about another demon, demonic release this, this week in a church. Well, that's grounds for rejoicing whenever somebody gets free of a demon, isn't it? <laughs> Not for everyone. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So when the evil spirit left that girl, money left their pockets. And when people of the darkness lose money, their hope is gone because they love money more than anything. Verse 20, they brought them, Paul and Silas, before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. I don't know how often you talk to your Bible when you're reading it. I'm always, what? I'm like, I talked to my Bible. I, read, I looked at this this week. I said, give me a break. These guys bought a human being for a slave. They aligned themselves with the dark powers of Satan. And they're making money off of this girl. And now they said, hey, we have an ethical concern about uh, uh, the mix of uh, separation of church and state. <laughs> and they're corrupt to the core. And they're having these conversations about civil liberties and, and all this. Just really, just give me a break. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped of their clothes and beaten with rods. Broad daylight, no trial, publicly stripped and beaten with rods. So what would you be thinking at this time? Let me guess. Murmur, 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 grumble, grumble, grumble. I think I could do that. I just want you to stop here for a moment and think about what's going on here. What did we see earlier in this passage? Let me, I'll give you, I'll test your memory. Who sent them to Philippi? They were trying to go east. Who sent them west? God. So do you think, can we surmise by that statement, it was the will of God for them to be in Philippi. So it's the will of God for them to be in Philippi, and now they're beaten while doing the will of God. Let's make a summary statement of that. You can be in the center of God's will, the very center of the palm of His hand, and at the same time be in a whole lot of pain. But that suffering didn't stop with the beating. It continued. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. I don't know how many of you have ever visited a prison here in the States. It might be local jail. It might be at state penitentiary level. But... They're intimidating. There's big, steel, thick bars and secure locks, and they clink when you go through them. No doubt intimidating, but on the whole, they're fairly clean. So I want you to get that image out of your mind when you think jail, first century. 
you need to think dark, smells of human waste, garbage littering the floor, and a home for rats. That's where they are for doing the will of God. So again, what's your inclination at this point? Murmur, despair, shut down, run away. Those are good options for me, not for Paul and Silas. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Now that's got to be among the top ten coolest verses in the Bible. Singing while you're in prison. The only reason that you sing with joy to God in prison is because you think He is so magnificent that He's worth singing about all the time. There's no other explanation of why you sing in prison. You say, He is magnificent all the time. Can you imagine? I'm so glad they were singing. Because look who's listening in. Somebody's listening in to your life. Somebody listened in to your life at work this week. They listened to you and they watched you. Long before people ever read a Bible, they read Christians. So they're watching These godless, hardened, violent, immoral criminals are saying, what gives? We've never had anybody come through these prison doors singing songs of joy to God. And they're praying. So here's my question. What do you think they're praying about? They're in jail, back bleeding, feet in chains, stocks. They're praying. I think they're praying something like this. Oh, God, you have placed us here in this prison. We are surrounded by all these lost people. Would you help them know Jesus tonight? I mean, where else are criminals going to hear about Christ? Not from other criminals. Lord, save them. And then, what are they singing about? They're singing hymns. From what? It's his first century. There wasn't a hymnal. There wasn't a CCLI copyright license and you could flick a PowerPoint on and sing with the band. Where do you get hymns? My guess is you write them. When you're sailing on that boat from Antioch and Syria all the way across the Mediterranean to Cyprus, you got time on your hands, you're thinking about the glories of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you, you write a song about him. Then you're walking across Asia Minor, across the dusty roads of Turkey, from city to city. You're thinking about Jesus who holds the sun and all of the universe. As the book of Job says, He holds the earth on nothing. You write a song about him. I think they were simply writing, they were singing hymns that they wrote out of the joy of their heart. And in the midst of singing these hymns, look what God did, how God responded. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake 
that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, or at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. We have more opportunities to sing in the remainder of this service. And I can't wait because I am begging God today, all of December into 2020, that we will sing in such a way that God will send an earthquake to this church, to your lives, to this city that will unlock doors and set people free in a way that we have never seen. I pray for a divine earthquake that heals people and liberates people to fall upon this church and upon your life and your family and your job. May God send an earthquake in response to your singing in jail. But those earthquakes only happen when you're in jail. Those kinds. When you sing when you're in pain. Verse 27. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Let me ask you where you would be. I already asked you what you'd do. Would you be praising? Would you be part of the little singing group, the praise team in prison? Now I'm going to ask you another question. If you've been praying to God and all of a sudden he sends an earthquake your handcuffs come off and your prison doors are open. What are you going to do? Let's run. It's time to get out of here. God's rescued me. I'm free. You know what Paul thought? You know what Paul, how Paul defined freedom? Great. I am free now to preach the gospel in prison some more. Freedom for Paul meant not running from pain. Freedom for Paul meant I am free to preach the gospel everywhere. Verse 28. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, Mr. Jailer. We're all here. Is that not loving? Love that. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved. Why is he asking that? He's a godless, hardened jailer. How does he even know he needs to be saved? What's the word saved mean to a pagan? How does he know this? Because he, here's how he knows, because he had heard all night Paul and Silas praying for his salvation, praying the gospel that God would save this jailer. That's how he knew to ask that question. Tell me how I can know the God of your life. So they answer his question. How do you get saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Paul and Silence could have at this time in their life so vengefully watched this man take this sword and cram it into his stomach and watch him die. And they run off in the sunset to freedom. Instead, they preach the gospel to the least deserving person in 
Philippi. And because of that, he gets saved. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them to his house and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy. Joy to the world kind of joy. Because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Now what I love about this story, all right, he's saved. So we got Lydia saved in the city, house church. Now the jailer saved and his family. Now the next day, the magistrates, the city leaders find out what had happened. And now they are begging Paul and Silas, please leave our town quietly. Don't know what you got, who you are, who you serve. Just look at that. I love this verse. The city leaders, magistrates, mayor, came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. I thought these guys were in charge. I mean, yesterday they thought they were in charge, right? Strip them, beat them. We're in charge. Now they're begging the apostles, please don't make trouble for us. Would you leave quietly? Who's in charge? God is in charge. Paul would later write in 2 Timothy, the word of God is not chained. Handcuffs, dungeons, guards, cancer, death. It's not in charge of this world. God is. And when he is finished with Paul and Silas in Philippi, he opens prison cells and they go preach the gospel in Thessalonica. God's in charge of the drama called life. Paul was able to sing because he knew the hands that were crucified for his sins were the hands that have control over this trial. Samuel Lamb is one of the most well-known house church pastors in China. He pastors a fellowship, the Demangzhan Church in Guangzhou, China. Three million people live there. In his house, he knocked out every wall to make room for benches so the people who come to the church and attend one of the five worship services. I'm grateful for all that God has done in this church since July. Now we're at December, has moved us into a building and moved us from one service to two. But before you think you've done a big thing, they go to five at risk of life because they, they love the gospel, want to hear it, want to see others hear it. So they adjust. Thank you for adjusting. Please continue to adjust. Samuel Lamb has, he has, only has a small corner in his house where he's got a little stove, refrigerator, and a cot, and the rest of his house is benches. Because of his faith in Christ and his witness for the Lord in the city, he's endured numerous beatings and arrests. On one occasion, after being released from prison, the prison guards, officials, government officials said, do not return to your church ever. So... In lieu of their request, he returns to his church the next Sunday. 
and says to his people, I've been commanded to not meet with you anymore. What do you want to do? The church doubled in attendance the next Sunday. Pastor Samuel has endured more than 21 years in prison. Please don't that num- let that number pass by quickly. We give you so many statistics. 21 years of your life. 15 of those years were, <clears throat> were physical labor, hard physical labor, in coal mines. His, his crime was making a copy of the New Testament by hand. Vernon Brewer is a long-term friend, long-time friend of Samuel, Pastor Samuel. He asked him one day, how did you endure those 15 years? Pastor Samuel replied, I quoted scripture that I had committed to memory, and I composed hymns of worship to God. A sang, a sang to Jesus while I was in pain. How do you sing with joy in prison? There is only one answer. You sing to Jesus. You are singing to the only person who has ever answered the jailer's question, what must I do to be saved from hell? Jesus. And will you grasp that? That he came to earth to save you from hell, to save you for heaven. You'll start singing to him all the time, even in prison. What must I do to be saved? Believe in Jesus. Believe that he lived a perfect life so that when God looks at your life, the credit the, perfect, the perfection of Jesus Christ can be credited to your body. Believe in Jesus. That he suffered on the cross with joy so that in his suffering you would not have to suffer for sins that you committed. Believe that he rose from the dead and is now reigning in heaven because he rules over all forces of the universe with indestructible power. Believe that he sends his Holy Spirit into your body and gives you new birth because he rules over all of his children with indestructible love. Believe that he will complete history by creating a new heaven and a new earth because he rules all over all the universe with an indestructible plan. Believe in Jesus. That's how you sing in prison. If somebody ever asks you, what's your church do? What are your programs? We only have two. We preach and we sing. It's what church is. You came in today, band sang some, I preached some, they're about to sing, bye-bye. A church. And I told that to our people back in 2002, that's what we're doing. Because that's what real churches do. They sing and they preach and they sing and they preach. And you think about it, there's not another religion in the history of the world that does what we do. You won't find Muslims doing it. You won't find Hindus doing it. You won't find people of Confucianism doing it. Where there is something declared and people singing with joy after that declaration. I love what Piper says. When Apple 
unveils a new image of its latest techno-religion. Tim Cook may preach, but the audience doesn't sing. We are the only ones that listen to truth and respond by singing. You know what your singing is, what you're about to do? Your singing is a response to the seeing. That's what singing is. You see, and then you sing as a response to the singing. Because you see, there are some truths that are so easy to forget and can so be so easily suffocated by pain that they don't become alive in your life until you sing them. Singing is the mechanism by which God takes you from pain into His presence. So you know what my job is? My job is to help you get ready to sing by getting ready for you to see. My job is to help you see. Their job is to help you respond by singing. So through preaching and my talking, I use the Scripture to remind you of truths that you love. God is self-sufficient. He needs no one, and He answers to no one. Through biblical teaching, I remind you that God is creative. All beauty, all form, all color, all function come from God. I met somebody on the back row a minute ago. A little baby is growing in her stomach. And I'm just thinking, right now, that baby's growing by the sovereign will of God. God has perfect knowledge. It's my, my joy every week to use the Scripture to remind you that God has perfect knowledge over all things. He controls every atom of the universe, and not one atom of the universe moves without His permission. And when God grants it permission, that permission is given only through a perfectly moral and perfectly loving mind. Through teaching of the Bible, we see that God is the one who supplies you with every conceivable burst of energy that you have. Look, all that right there. It's all happening because God is allowing me to do it. My lips are moving. My brain is coordinating my tongue so that words come out. They pass through the the air and your ears hear them because God's in charge of all physical movement. He invites us into his kingdom and makes us fit to live there through the sacrifice and the triumph of Jesus Christ. And then he so loves us. He keeps us from departing from Him by giving the Holy Spirit to our bodies who will walk with us every step of the way until we arrive on the shores of heaven. And I remind you of this week after week, and then, I, and then after you're reminded of that, you respond by singing. And so preaching helps you see the glory of God. Singing is a response to your seeing. Your seeing is necessary, for without it, you'd never sing. And singing would not take place unless you first see. So through your singing in just a moment, this is what you do. That's why you raise your hands. Some of you raise your hands. Literally, through your singing, you're reaching out to God. Through your singing, you're telling Him thank you. Through your singing, you say, I want to touch you and be touched by you. And through your Singing, you are pleading for grace to help you believe when it's so hard, very hard to believe. 
We sing as a declaration of the infinite hope of God that has not gone away even though the walls of your personal life have crumbled into a million pieces. Our singing is a declaration of hope that we are finding it difficult to believe in our life right now. And with that said, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And through the eating, the celebrating of Christ's broken body and His shed blood, by way of singing, we are going to respond to God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the opportunity right now to sing the gospel, to sing about what Jesus has done in His perfect life and atoning death, to sing of His love for sinners and His desire to pardon the guilty. Thank you for the chance to sing of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Thank you for sending Him to keep nudging us and pulling us and convicting us and forgiving us and empowering us. Thank you that we get to sing to the Holy Spirit And now we need the help of the Holy Spirit to help us sing. Lord, without the Holy Spirit, we just want to sin. We want to run from pain. We want to live a life of self-pity and self-interest and self-exaltation. We need the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to sing. We need the Holy Spirit to help us see that the bread that's in our hands right now It is representative of the bread of life, the body of Christ, the person of Jesus, who literally walked for 33 years in perfection, in perfect obedience, because we never would and never will. May we cherish the bread because of its visible reminder of Him who lived and died for us. We pray this in Christ's name, in His power, in His love, and in His hope. Amen.